0: Hello there, this is Geoffrey Wyatt, Senior Astronomy Educator here at Sydney Observatory. I'm going to talk to you about what's in the sky for the 10th month of the old Roman calendar before the reform of Julius Caesar in 46 BC. Uh, 10th month? December? Yes, that's right. Of course, things were changed around a little bit and December became the 12th month, so we're on target. But of course, you've probably wondered like I, why December is 12th. But anyway, let's move along. To have a look at the night sky, you're going to need some resources, and one of those will be a monthly sky guide map, or a copy of the Australasian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Lom. You'll also need a very clear view of the sky. Look, to be honest, you you can only get what you can get to, but the higher you are, the clearer the view you have of the four cardinal directions, north, east, south, and west, away from lights, away from trees and buildings the better the view. Of course, at this time of year, it should be quite nice outside, so a nice comfortable blanket to sit on as well, and perhaps a drop of Chardonnay for those of us old enough to enjoy. And that will assist, to some extent, your imagination when coming to looking at the stars. What we want you to do is wait until just after sunset, get a clear view, and I want you to look to a part in the sky that is at 23 degrees right ascension and 30 degrees declination. Have you got it yet? Hmm? Well, of course, that raises a problem. Most people don't know what right ascension and declination is. That's if you like the astronomer's version of longitude and latitude. It's a pretty hard way of finding your way around as well, so we need some other way to find our direction. Most of us know our cardinal directions, north, east, south and west, and the sun roughly setting over in the west, depending on the time of year, roughly rising in the east, and we can figure out north and south. So we can find our direction around from the north in something we call azimuth by looking at that direction. So 90 degrees azimuth would be east, 180 would be south, 270 west, and so on. So that part's easy. If I was to say to you something is directly overhead, I think most people could figure out that that's 90 degrees up, or halfway, 45 degrees. But when it comes to other angles... It's intriguing how poorly we do at estimating angles. What I want you to do, therefore, is to hold out your hand at arm's length, clench your fist and hold up a pinky. Now, for most people, and it, regardless of your age and your size, because the proportions are all pretty much the same, your pinky at arm's length will cover roughly one degree of the sky, or if you like, twice the size of the full moon. Close the finger in and make a clenched fist, and you've got a marker for roughly 10 degrees. Now stretch out your fingers to your thumb, and you've got roughly 20 degrees. Now that we have a, a way of finding objects in the sky by measuring angles east of north and degrees above the horizon, I want you to go to an azimuth of 270 degrees, oh, That's west, and I want you to look about 60 degrees up from the western horizon. So 60 degrees will be three outstretched uh, handspans from pinky to thumb. And what you're going to look for is the fourth of the four royal stars. The royal stars? Yeah, look, people have been looking at the stars for many, many thousands of years. And of course, later on, I'll talk about some indigenous stories. And indigenous people of this land have been looking at the stars, we think, longer than any other community on the planet, which is really something we should all be proud of. But for the time being, we're going to look at uh, one of the four royal stars, as was determined by the people living in Mesopotamia, the region between the great rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates, as many as 5,000 years ago. You're going to look for a star that's only 25 light years away. Ooh, light years? A light year is simply the distance that light travels in one year which is a long way. Light travels, for example, in a vacuum of space at roughly 300,000 kilometres per second. You multiply that by 60 seconds per minute, 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours per day, and 365 and a quarter days on average per year. And you end up with something like nine and a kilometres, which is such a silly number. We just don't use it. It's too complicated. So a light year is the distance that light travels in one year. So this star, 1.8 times the diameter of the Sun, it's a young white star, and in fact one of the first stars to have had planets directly imaged in orbit around it. And that was only done in 2008. So this star is the brightest star in the constellation of Pisces Austrinus, the southern fish, it is Fomalhaut. The ancients that I mentioned a moment ago from Mesopotamia used stars, as have most people throughout the ages, as a form of calendar marker. And they plotted the position of four key events in the sky, and they are the equinoxes and the solstice. They used the stars Aldebaran in Taurus, Regulus in Leo, Antares in Scorpius, and Fomalo, as we see it in Pisces Astrinus to mark these key points. So Fomalo, thousands of years ago, but very importantly, no longer, was the nearest bright star next to the winter solstice. When you look at Fomalo, as I mentioned, there's not many bright stars nearby. Try and see a fish. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. But let your imagination go wild. And if you've had some of that chardonnay or red wine that I mentioned earlier, this may, in fact, assist just a little. I want you to look for a paisley swirl of stars. Yeah. Who ever thought that paisley would be of such significance to be related to something in the sky? But that wonderful fashion from the sixties that occasionally comes back. All right. Look for that paisley swirl around the bright star of Fomalhaut. And you just may be on the right part of the sky. It should be relatively easy because, as I've mentioned, Fomalhaut is a bright star, and there's not much not much else in that region. Once you've found Fomalhaut, which is incidentally drinking the water flowing from the jug of Aquarius, the water carrier, well, boy, is that hard to see. What I want you to do now is move ever so slightly to your left or the southwest as we're looking at it. You've got to use your map that you've hopefully printed off as well and you're going to look for a a long-necked bird with trailing legs. This particular constellation or group of stars is simply Grus the Crane. It was created by Petrus Plancius uh, in the late 1500s and he was of course a fairly famous Dutch astronomer. When you look at the paisley swirl, which is supposedly the, the fish, Pisus astrinus, and Gross the crane, you'll see straight away that, ooh, these pictures look nothing like what you see in star atlases and some of the wonderful pictures we see in books and on the web. No, they don't. Uh, you've got to use your own imagination, and you can make out some simple stick figures if you're good at it. Don't give up, it's well worth a try because when you do eventually see one it's one of those, ah, I can see it moments. 40 degrees or two hand spans to the left of where we are and about 60 degrees above the horizon so that's three hand spans up we should now be able to see the ninth brightest star in the night sky and the brightest star in the constellation of Eridanus the river called Achenar. Achenara is rather intriguing, you see. It's about eight times the diameter of the Sun, but it spins 15 times faster than the Sun. The effect of that rapid rotation is that this star flattens at the top and bulges around the middle. In fact, its equatorial diameter is about 50% greater than its polar diameter. So it is, if you like, somewhat squashed. Oh, by the way, if you like the distances, you're looking at this star tonight as it really was about 144 years ago. You're looking back in the time, and of course that means that this star has a distance of 144 light years. Some indigenous cultures of Australia use Achenar and consider the nearby second brightest star in the night sky, Canopus, to represent the cooking fires of two celestial brothers. The brothers themselves are represented by the large and small Magellanic clouds at a distance of 160,000 light-years and 201,000 light-years away, respectively. They are, of course, two of our closest, but not the closest, galaxies to us. Achenar is also quite intriguing because it's on the opposite side of the South Celestial Pole, Uh, from the smallest of all 88 constellations and some of us here in the south would argue the most important of all 88 constellations and that is the Southern Cross. Unfortunately, the Southern Cross is not easy to see at the moment and you'd have to wait until about 3am to see it uh, low in the southeast. And you can use the Southern Cross drawing a line through the long axis going all the way across the sky towards Achenar then going back along that same line Midway, and that's pretty close to the South Celestial Pole. It's not dead accurate, but it's close enough. As we drop down from Achenar and head towards that second brightest star in the night sky, Canopus, we're going to pass a couple of fairly important constellations. Well, really they're only important because at this time of year when you can't see the real Southern Cross people often get confused by what we call asterisms, patterns of stars that look like pictures that aren't actually part of a constellation, uh, or not their own constellation, if you like. The asterisms that I'm going to mention are the False Cross and the Diamond Cross. They're actually made up of stars from the two constellations of Carina the Keel and Vela the Sails. You see... People look for the Southern Cross at this time of year. It's a nice time to be outside. The temperature's just right, and hopefully we've got some lovely warm evenings. You look up for the Southern Cross, and... Oops, not there. What is there, of course, amongst the two to 3,000 stars that you can see with the naked eye, are four stars that make up a cross. And unfortunately, in this part of the sky, we see two false crosses. One of them actually called the False Cross the other, the diamond cross. Both are larger and fainter than the real southern cross, and nor do they have the two bright pointers that point toward it. So as we go past the false crosses, we're now going to look for the second brightest star in the night sky, and that's Canopus. Canopus is in the southeast. It's about 50 degrees above the horizon, so that's two hand spans and one one clenched fist. Um, in the southeast here we have a star that's 310 light years away it's 8.5 times the mass of the sun oh it's a pretty big star that means it's actually about 1300 times brighter than the sun and that actually makes it the brightest star within 700 light years of the sun yet as we look at it it appears to be only the second brightest star in the night sky. I wonder why. Ah. Not only is the star's intrinsic brightness important, it must be its distance as well. And there's another star we'll come to shortly, which is not as bright, but because it's close, looks brighter. But I'll come back to that in just a moment. Canopus is a very famous star. It was listed by the incredible astronomer Claudius Ptolemy in his Almagest of around about 150 AD. Not only is it the second brightest star in the night sky, it's famous because it's been around for a long time. Now, this whole region of the sky used to be part of a really, really big constellation called Argo, the ship that carried Jason in the Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece. But over the years, astronomers thought, hey, it's actually too big. So they broke it up into four smaller constellations. And we now have Carina the Keel, Vale of the Sails, Pyxis the Compass, and Puppis the Deck. Well, the brightest star in Carina the Keel is Canopus. The name itself probably uh, dates back to the time of the Trojan Wars, and according to the story, it was the name of the ship's captain. So Argo the ship, its captain's name was Canopus. Fair enough that he gets his own star, I suppose. What's intriguing about this star too is that the Burong indigenous community, a clan of the Wurgaya language group in uh, Victoria, see this star as uh, a male crow by the name of Wa and Wa was the first entity to bring fire to the people. If you've got a telescope or a small pair of binoculars, this part of the sky, although it's a bit low, is actually quite a beautiful region to scan. Not too far from the star Canopus, or Wa, we have a a very intriguing object called Eta Carina, Ida Carina is a cataclysmic variable star. It's a really bizarre object. The historian Stanbridge has recorded that the indigenous people that I've mentioned, the Burong, actually recorded, if you like, the uh, outburst of this star in 1843. You see, it, in the 1800s, it went from being a fairly inconspicuous third or fourth magnitude star, which means it's just one of the, the background mob to suddenly become the second brightest star by 1843 and then slowly fade away from visibility. Now it seems that the Burong actually incorporated this star's variability into their dreamtime stories or their oral traditions, which is really quite amazing. As a result, the star has a name and that is Kologowarik Wa, which simply means the wife of the star Wa. What we do after we've had a look at this region, of the sky around Canopus, is go towards the east, and we're going to look about 20 degrees above the eastern horizon. What you should see is a twinkling, dazzling display of the brightest star in the night sky. It may not appear to be as bright as Canopus, which is higher up at this point in time, because this star is a little bit lower. It's a lot closer, at only 8.6 light-years away, making it the fifth closest star to us. It's quite young, too, at only 200 to 300 million years. Its size, well, a little bigger than the Sun, so nearly twice as big, and only 25 times brighter. There's a few numbers there, but the important thing is that this star is close. It's 8.6 light-years away. It's nowhere near as bright as Canopus that we've just had a look at, But it's so much closer. And as a result, this star, Sirius the Dog Star, is the brightest star in the night sky seen anywhere on the Earth. It is a beautiful object and historically incredibly important too. You see, thousands of years ago, the ancient Egyptians used to watch this star disappear in the glare of the sun for about 70 days. And then they would keep watch for it in the morning eastern sky. And when they saw it just pop up out of the glare of the sun in the morning, they were able to use that to work out over a long period of time that the length of the year is 365 and a quarter days. Their error was just 11 minutes, and they did this many thousands of years ago. Really quite incredible thing to have done. So Sirius is beautiful. It's also useful to work out, for example, the time of the year. Oh, and I should point out too that, again, to the Burong clan, it actually represents the star Warapil, and that is a male eagle, and he was one of the chiefs of the Norumbungatias, or the old spirits. To other indigenous communities, uh, the appearance of Sirius marked the time of the year when it was, well the right time to go looking for tasty young dingo pups. Oh well, but that highlights something quite important. The stars have been used for thousands of years in Australia and around the rest of the world as a form of calendar marker and as a way of navigation. Let's continue around towards our left or towards the northeast and just 20 degrees above the horizon Oh, by the way, have you noticed that we seem to be hugging the horizon a fair bit here? I'll explain why later. So just 20 degrees above the horizon is a fairly bright orange-looking star. Look, we call it a a red supergiant, but to most people it's not traffic light red or laser red, so it's orange-ish. Anything you see over in this part of the sky that's not white or blue, you're probably looking at it. It's the eighth brightest star in the night sky, It's 1,100 times the diameter of the sun. Goodness gracious me. Think about that for a moment. This little twinkling point of light that you're looking at in the northeast, 20 degrees up, is 1,100 times the diameter of the sun. The sun is 114 times the diameter of the earth. So you are looking at something that is enormously big. Its distance, in the order of about 430 uh, light years, and it's 100,000 times brighter than the sun. Goodness gracious me, what is it? Well, it's a dying star. Whenever you see a reddish looking star, it's one of two things. It's either an incredibly long-lived, in fact you'd, you'd almost say immortal star, or It's a very short-lived dying star as we look at it. The thing is, these very small, almost immortal stars, well, none of those are visible to the naked eye. So when you look around the night sky, every single star that you see that is golden, orange, reddish is actually dying and coming quite close to the end of its life, obviously, if it's dying. This particular one, its mass we're not sure of. And as a result, we're not exactly sure what's going to happen. But quite probably, it's going to explode as a Type 2 supernova. Uh, When? Well, next Tuesday too. No, actually, we have no idea. It could be within the next million years or so. Uh, Who really knows? It would be really cool if it did explode during our lifetime. because it's relatively close and would be spectacular to watch but I haven't told you its name. This star has one of the most intriguing names in the night sky. A long, long, long time ago, its Arabic name was Ibt al or something along that pronunciation, meaning the the hand of the, of the big man. Hand of the big name? Yeah, it's an unusual name. It's so difficult to pronounce, and what's happened is, over the years, as this name has come to us from different Arabic communities in the Middle East. It's gone to the ancient Egyptians and then to the Greeks. Then, of course, there was this rather unfortunate period called the Dark Ages when so much wonderful heritage from the past was lost. But then, of course, there was the awakening, the Renaissance. People suddenly started to discover translations of a copy of a translation of a copy, and we had all these strange star names. As a result, many of them over the years have been, well, mispronounced. They've devolved, I suppose you could say. And as a result, Ipt-Alyaza is now commonly called Betelgeuse. Yes, I'm sure you've heard of it before. Some people call it Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse. But Betelgeuse is just as wrong and therefore just as acceptable as all the other names we have for it. It is an enormous dying star in one of the more famous of the constellations, that is Orion the Hunter. Now, Australians are are quite unique at getting the name of Orion wrong. We should be looking towards the east. We should have a a lovely, clear view of it at the moment. And what you're going to look for is a group of stars that looks like a saucepan. Look for three stars not far from the orange glow of uh, Betelgeuse. In fact, it'll be a little bit higher three stars that make up the base of a saucepan, you can go up one side, then of course you go back up the other side, and three more star-like objects that form, well, a handle. If you can find that, you've done well. It is typically only Australians, our friends across in New Zealand and in Southern Africa, that refer to this group of stars as looking like a saucepan. You see, it's been named from the Northern Hemisphere long, long ago, and as a result, it doesn't look anything like a saucepan, Uh, but in fact the mighty hunter Orion. Now there are different stories about Orion. Uh, You can just imagine if you were to pass on a secret to your friend and then a relative and then have them pass it on and pass it on and pass it on, within a few hours you'd probably get a different story. So you can imagine what's happened over thousands of years. There are many conflicting, odd stories about some of the patterns that we have in the sky. But one of the ones I like is that Orion was a mighty hunter one of the mightiest hunters ever to have lived, and as a result he used to hang around with the goddess of the hunt. Her name was Artemis. So straight away we're talking about a story from ancient Greece. Orion made a very foolish mistake. He boasted that he could kill any animal on the planet. After all, he was a hunter. Uh, To teach him a lesson, Artemis created the giant scorpion, Scorpius, to um, go into battle with him. The battle that followed was so so incredible that it even caught the attention of Zeus himself, king of the gods. Ultimately, Orion was stung and killed by the scorpion. Zeus took the scorpion and placed him in the sky. Artemis, with a tinge of regret, took the body of Orion and placed him into the sky as well. as also a bit of a reminder for mere mortals to curb their, their ambitions. But she placed him into the sky on the opposite side of the sky from Scorpius, so that you don't ever get to see the two close together. So coming up in the east right now, we see Orion, which gives you a hint that Scorpius has just disappeared from view over in the west. It is a fabulous constellation, I think most people at some stage or another have been able to look at it. The problem is, as I've mentioned also, in the southern hemisphere it's upside down, so we look at it and see A saucepan, not the mighty hunter Orion. Just before I go, uh, some other stories actually have suggested that Orion was, well, how can I put it, somewhat dim. Uh, You see, he's uh, standing on a rabbit called Lepus the Hare. So how good a hunter can he be if he's actually standing on a rabbit and chasing uh, a flock of doves in the form of the Pleiades nearby? Not exactly a big game hunter. But again, there are different stories. So go back to that saucepan, as we've described it, and have a look at the handle of the saucepan. You may remember just a moment ago, I said three star-like objects. You see, the middle star-like object of the handle is not a star at all. But in fact, I suppose you could call it the maternity ward. What you are looking at is the birthplace of stars. And this is truly an amazing sight, even through a small telescope. A pair of binoculars might be pushing it, but if you can get to a small telescope, uh, please have a look. You're looking at an object which is absolutely beautiful, and its name, M42. Right. Remember that astronomers, we don't typically have wonderful imaginations these days, so it's simply a catalogue name. It means it's the 42nd object in a catalogue developed by a man whose name began with M, Charles Messier, a Frenchman. He made up a list of, well, red herrings, things not to look at if you were trying to find a comet. And this particular object was the 42nd in his catalogue. But what it is, is a nebula. A nebula is, of course, the Latin word for cloud, so it's a star cloud, a star-forming cloud It's roughly 1,300 light-years away, and it's absolutely huge. It's about 24 light-years across, so it's a very, very large object. In fact, it's part of a much larger object called the Orion Molecular Gas Cloud, but you can't see all of that unless you do super-long astrophotography, which is ridiculously hard, in my opinion. This cloud of gas and dust is being lit up from within, by at least six baby stars. We call this group of stars the trapezium. So if you can have a look, look for this glowing cloud, which is the middle star-like object of the handle. If you've got a slightly more powerful telescope, you'll be looking at six little stars clustered together. There's actually enough mass there to form, well, at the moment, we think about 700 are being formed in there right now. But you can see six with a relatively small telescope. Our next stop in the night sky is a little bit further around towards the northeast and again just 25 degrees above the horizon. And we're going to look for the star Aldebaran in the constellation of Taurus the Bull. From here you're going to see, well, pretty much just another one of these uh, gold and reddish stars. So that tells us, what did I mention before? Yes, that's right, the star is dying But also, this star is the first of the four royal stars. The royal stars, quickly, well, they were simply calendar markers, the brightest stars next to particular events in the sky. So many thousands of years ago, from Mesopotamia, Aldebaran, in the constellation of Taurus the Bull, was the brightest star next to the vernal equinox. And that is where the sun crossed from the southern hemisphere into the northern hemisphere, so crossing the celestial equator and marked the beginning of spring, and that's actually when the year used to begin. This idea of starting the year on the 1st of January that's only a Johnny-come-lately sort of idea. For a long, long time the year used to begin with the vernal equinox in March But Taurus, Aldebaran what you're looking at is, as I've mentioned, probably the oldest of all 88 constellations, because that's where the zodiac, the circle of the animals, began, as seen from Mesopotamia. And Taurus is, of course, a very important creature. The bull, not only is a source of food for for many of us, is also a beast of burden. So it's not surprising that this animal worked its way into sky mythology. Uh, Let me warn you, however, you should never actually approach Taurus the bull because in one of the stories, it's actually the king of the gods, Jupiter, or Zeus, carrying his lover, uh, the beautiful young girl, Europa, off to the island of Crete. Now, this was such a famous story of uh, Jupiter and Europa that the continent of Europe took her name. Cool, huh? Um, Aldebaran is what we call a K5 orange giant, It's the 13th brightest star in the night sky, and it's about 65 light years away. It's coming to the end of its life, as I've mentioned, and at the moment it's exhausted all the hydrogen fuel in its core and expanded and expanded and expanded. And at this point it's about 44 times the size of the Sun, but only a little under twice its mass. Now think about that for a second. Something that's only about twice the mass of the Sun which, remember, is 114 times the size of the Earth, but 44 times the size of the Sun, the density of this star near the edges, near the outer areas, would be astoundingly low. But nonetheless, it glows that cool, as far as stars are concerned, orange-reddish colour. The star Aldebaran, at just 65 light-years away, is actually between us and a group of young stars in the background that make up that V-shape that I mentioned a little while ago. The V-shaped group of stars is an example of something called an open cluster. This particular open cluster, called the Hyades, is just 153 light-years away, and that makes it actually the closest cluster to us. The stars are quite young, at only about 625 million years. Once you've found our Aldebaran and that V-shaped group of stars, we go a little bit further towards the north, and we're looking about 25 degrees up from the horizon, you're going to see a group of young stars. In fact, this is another example of an open cluster. But this one, I think most people would agree, is the most spectacular of all. It's called M45, oh do. There we go with that terrible M catalogue again. But, oh well, it works, so we keep using it. The 45th object in the catalogue, developed by Charles Messier, is what we're looking at at the moment. But it also has other names. Uh, For example, the Pleiades. Uh, To some indigenous groups, uh, for example, from the Maralinga area of South Australia, the story that relates to this is one of my favourites in the sky, and that's the Guttara and the Minimaburni. The Pleiades or the Wurikwutada and the Minimabuni, are about 445 light-years away. So they're not exactly close, but they're less than 150 million years old. Oh, they're so cute. They are baby stars that have just been formed. I suppose in human terms, it's like going to visit them in the maternity ward at the hospital. When you look at some pictures of this online, if you do search for M45 or Pleiades, you'll actually see stars, a cluster of them, surrounded by a lovely bluish glow. Well, that blue dust cloud, as it turns out, is not actually part of the uh, Pleiades. It's actually between us and those stars. So you're looking at two objects, which can be a little confusing. The other thing is the Pleiades. They're known as the Seven Sisters. What's intriguing is this idea of Seven Sisters seems to repeat itself right around the world. There are many different cultural stories that relate to these stars as being Seven Sisters, in- including, as I've mentioned, the Gutara and the Minimaburni. The thing is, if you look at them, however, you'll probably only be able to see six. If you've got really good eyesight, you might see nine. Rarely do you ever meet anyone that says, mm, yeah, okay, I can see seven. But that's what they're called, the Seven Sisters. Oh, by the way, you also know their Japanese name, especially those of you that drive the Subaru. Yes, if you're a Subaru driver, have a look at that emblem on the front of your car. It's a group of stars. Which stars? These, the Pleiades, which also, according to the ancient Greeks, represent the daughters of Atlas, who carried the world upon his shoulders, and their mother, Pleione. It's a beautiful group of stars and well worth the time locating. Once we've had a look at the Pleiades, which actually in its own right was its own constellation until relatively recently when it was, if you like, demoted and simply became part of Taurus the bull. Once you've had a look at that, we're going to continue around to the north to look at a zodiac constellation with an enormous number of stars. Let's count them. One, two, three. Yeah. Fairly devoid of stars. And what can you make out of out of three stars? Well, in fact, the horns of Aries the goat. Now, Aries the goat is the goat that produced the golden fleece that's so famous in the story of Jason and the Argonauts. There's not a whole lot to see here, unfortunately, but it is a fairly famous constellation because in astronomical terms, we use our, if you like, our measurement position, our celestial equivalent of longitude, as having started in this part of the sky, and we call it the first point of Aries. Unfortunately it gets really complicated here because the Earth does a 26,000 year wobble on its axis and that sort of changes the position and the orientation of objects in the sky. Um, So the first point of Aries, if you like, the zero starting point for our celestial longitude which we call right ascension, is actually no longer in Aries but it's now over in Pisces and heading towards Aquarius. Hmm... Aquarius, so it's kind of moving towards Aquarius. If I could sing, I, at this point in time, I'd burst into song and sing the song um, The Dawning of the Age of Aquarius. But trust me, you can listen to me on a podcast, but you cannot listen to me sing. The point is that this celestial starting point for our measuring of positions is called the first point of Aries because thousands of years ago it was here, but it's now drifted from, from Aries to Pisces and in another couple of hundred years... So not soon, it'll be in Aquarius. In my opinion, don't waste too much time looking at Aries with only three three bright stars. Continue past it and look towards the northwest and look for a group of stars that makes up, well, four stars that make up a square. What you're looking for is the flying horse Pegasus. If you're away from the city lights and there's no moon, and you've got a good view of it before it gets too low, you'll actually be able to see the body of the horse, which is, of course, a big square, and look carefully using one of our star maps, and you should be able to pick out the long neck and the the face of the horse. It's got two cute little front legs, but more importantly for a flying horse, what's missing? Well, can't see any wings, and it doesn't appear to have any tail or rear legs either. But anyway, you've got the front half of a horse... With a fairly chunky square body it's relatively easy to see as long as you've got uh, a clear view but the reason we spend a bit of time on this one is just above and if you like wrapped around that square there's a large large v-shaped group of stars that are quite faint of course, they're another one of these water signs science uh, star signs if you like constellations in a part of the sky called the sea And you're looking for a V-shaped group of stars that's much, much bigger than the V I just mentioned in Taurus the Bull. But at the either end of the V, there's a little circular or knobby loop of stars. And what you're looking at there are the gods Aphrodite and Eros, or if you like, Venus and Cupid, in the constellation of Pisces the Fish. We're going to finish off as we head around towards the west and look at the constellation of Capricornus, the seagoat just below Fomalo. Look, to be honest, at this time of the year, it's pretty hard to see because it's not very bright. It's the second faintest of all the zodiac constellations, and it's only about 30 degrees up. Hmm. So I mentioned earlier, we've sort of done a bit of a loop around the horizon, you know, between 30 and 50 degrees up. We haven't actually looked directly overhead why not? Ah, because at this time of year, all the interesting stuff that hangs around the edge, if you like, the periphery of Via Lactea, the Milky Way, is around the horizon. The stuff that's directly overhead, such as Phoenix the Bird, which was one of the 12 constellations invented by Petrus Planckius in the 16th century, or Cetus the Sea Monster, or some of the newer ones like Sculptor, the Sculptor, was introduced by Nicolas-Louis de la Salle, in the 18th century. These constellations are in effect astronomical fillers. There's not a whole lot up there for us to have a look at with the naked eye uh, and they're just ways of, if you like, breaking the sky up into more manageable areas. So all the action that we've just been talking about is in that band about 40 to 60 degrees above the horizon. However, what you can see away from the city and with no moon in the sky Back towards the south, you should be able to see the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud. They look like two small fluffy bits of Milky Way that have drifted off and broken away. So a faint, wispy, glowing light. The large Magellanic Cloud is an irregular galaxy with a central bar. Eh, That just tells us it's a galaxy. It's the third closest galaxy to us and about a hundredth of the size of the Milky Way. There's enough material in this to form about 10 billion stars the same as the Sun. It's about 160,000 light-years away, so that's a pretty big distance for you and I, but astronomically it's right on top of us. And in fact, astronomically, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is the local bully on the block and is stripping this galaxy of its own stars. There is a stream of stars going from the Large Magellanic Cloud towards us, called the Magellanic Stream, so we are in effect, um, well, ripping it apart or absorbing it. It's going to collide with us in the very distant future. If you've got a a pair of binoculars or a small telescope, the Large Magellanic Cloud is actually a really spectacular uh, object to have a look at. You'll be able to see one of the largest nebulae that we've ever seen, called the Tarantula Nebula. Once again, it's just Latin for cloud, and it's a rich star-forming region. Also, long, long, long ago, i.e. last century, in 1987, this area with the, of the sky was home to the first supernova visible to the naked eye since 1604. We're desperate to see a star blow up in our galaxy, uh, not too close, but we haven't been able to see one since 1604, and this was the closest we've had, 160,000 light years away, as we saw it in 1987. The other of the smaller galaxies is a little dwarf galaxy called the Small Magellanic Cloud. It has a mass of about 7 billion times that of the Sun, and as I've mentioned, both of these are heading toward us. To some indigenous communities, these two galaxies represent brothers that live in the sky. I'm going to start for the month of December. Instead of talking about the Moon like I normally do, I will come back to it, I'm going to talk to you first of all about something that was discovered by the International Scientific Optical Network in Russia. International Scientific Optical Network, ISON. Yes, that's right. We don't know in advance how good Comet ISON is going to be, but late November and early December may be the comet, not just of the year, because there's been two already. Uh, earlier in the year we had Lemon and Pan-Stars, but this may be the comet of the century. Am I excited about Comet Ison? Absolutely. Is it guaranteed, however, to put on the show of a lifetime? Absolutely not. Yes, unfortunately, comets have a long history of breaking our hearts. They can promise a lot and deliver little, or they can promise a lot and deliver it. We just don't know. So what you need to do is keep checking our blog, Facebook and Twitter accounts for the most up-to-date information. Sadly, it's going to be at its best from the Northern Hemisphere. I am indeed heading towards the Northern Hemisphere just to see it. You cannot risk not looking in the sky late November, early December for this comet. Which one is it again? It's Comet Isen. Getting back to our more mundane but no less spectacular highlights for the month of December, we have the phases of the Moon. New Moon will occur on Tuesday the 3rd at 11.22am. First quarter Moon will be on Tuesday the 10th at 2.12am. Don't forget, this is about the best time of the lunar month to look at the Moon, whether it be with binoculars, a small telescope, with a good eyepiece, or even indeed a telephoto zoom camera. Full moon will be on Tuesday the 17th at 8.28pm, last quarter Thursday the 26th of December at 12.48am. The summer solstice will occur at 4.11am on Sunday the 22nd, and that means the sun has reached its most southerly point from the celestial equator, and that's at 23.5 degrees away from it. Don't forget that the reason for the season is the axial tilt of the Earth. If the Earth wasn't leaning to one side by 23.5 degrees, we wouldn't have these beautiful seasonal changes. Uh, But fortunately it does lean, and we get to see the sun uh, appear to wander north and south of the equator in our yearly journey around the sun. Venus continues to set earlier throughout the month, and will cease to be the evening star by the 11th of next month, so the 11th of January. So it is getting harder to see, but it is still visible low in the west, just after sunset. On the 5th of December, the crescent moon is just below Venus, and on the 6th, it's just above So it's a good marker to see just how much things change day by day. At the start of the month, Jupiter is rising at around 10.30pm. So it's only just a night object, if you like, at the moment, not an early morning riser. But uh, by the end of the month, it's rising by 8.30pm and spending the whole month in the constellation of Gemini. It's getting very bright because it's approaching opposition on the 5th of January, so it's still a little bit away, but it is going to be very bright throughout December. From the 9th to the 12th, it will appear to go backwards in relation to the background stars in something that we call retrograde motion. So it's well worth a look over these few days just to see that hang on a second, it's not moving quite how you would expect it to go normally. And this is something that has puzzled astronomers, not now, of course, as we know how the solar system works. But for thousands of years, all sorts of bizarre models were introduced trying to explain this apparent backward or retrograde motion of the planets in relation to the background stars. On the 19th of December, the Moon is also very close to Jupiter, king of the gods. Morning highlights for December? Well, pretty much uh, Mars, which is in the constellation of Virgo, On the 26th, the last quarter moon will be nearby, just above and to the left. It's rising at around 2am, Mars of course, at the start of the month and closer to midnight by the end. The planet Saturn, although most of us Aussies call it Saturn, will be in the constellation of Libra and close to the moon on the 2nd and the 29th. This, by the way, is the best time to view Saturn for the entire year, as the rings are tilted to us at 22 degrees. They'll reach their maximum of 27 degrees in 2017, and then start to close up again until 2025, when they'll be side-on. Sadly, we won't see that, as it'll be too close to the Sun at the time. Also in the morning sky, the planet Jupiter, around the 10th at 2am. Boy, that's an inconvenient time. If you have a small telescope but have a good eyepiece, please try to have a peek at Jupiter. If you do, and you're very careful with the focus, you may just see the little volcanic moon Io drift in front of the planet and see its shadow transit the planet. It's pretty hard to do, but well worth a shot. Another highlight for the early mornings of December are the Geminid meteor showers, which is one of the best for us in the Southern Hemisphere. You need to look north early morning on the 14th and 15th, but wait until the moon has set. These meteors, by the way, are caused by the asteroid 32 Phaeton. What a spectacular name that is. Uh, According to Greek mythology, Phaeton was the son of the sun god Helios, It's about 5 kilometres in diameter and travels around the sun every 524 days. As it does this, for some bizarre reason as an asteroid, it does leave behind a little bit of dust. And as that dust collides with the atmosphere at up to 35 kilometres per second, uh, these things make the atmosphere heat up and glow mm, 40 kilometres and up. So if you're looking, short, sharp streaks of light on the morning of the 14th and 15th, well worth the early morning rise. If you'd like to know more about the happenings of the night sky, don't forget to purchase your copy of the Australasian Sky Guide. And being December, that means the 2014 version is out. It's a spectacular little book written by Dr Nick Lom from Sydney Observatory. You can purchase it at Sydney Observatory or the Powerhouse Museum shops, of course at good bookstores for 16 95 and you can purchase it online uh, at our website, although a few additional postage and handling charges apply. For the most up-to-date information, don't forget to check our blogs at the astronomy section of the Sydney Observatory website. That's www.sydneyobservatory.com.au. And you can follow us on Twitter, at SydneyObs, or look for Sydney Observatory, or one word, on Facebook. This podcast is available monthly at www.sydneyobservatory.com.au forward slash monthly or you can subscribe through iTunes. My name is Geoffrey Wyatt. I'm the Education Officer at Sydney Observatory. And I hope you've enjoyed your tour of the December 2013 Night Sky and Happy New Year.